Okay, so welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz, direct from the bunker, and if you hear a thumping noise, that isn't my head from the headlines of the week, but it's actually there's a small construction project going on in the vicinity of the bunker, so uh, if you hear a bumping, uh, it's, it's, it's not me. <laughs> Um, they're all right. <laughs> uh, as long as the bunker isn't compromised. No, it should. It's fairly solid, but I just want to make that clear. It's like if, if somebody says, "What's that dumping?" It's uh, everything's okay. Well, couldn't be I any worse. Just keep talking. It'll be all right. You know, just talk <laughs> over it. Yeah. Couldn't be any worse than the dog that it was in the background for at least half of this week's golf podcast. <laughs> but uh, it happens. Ah, this life, eh? Yep, yep, that's the the nature of the biz these days. Open Source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. You can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Guelph MPP, Mike Schreiner. And he is going to talk about just the awesome job that Doug Ford is doing right now. It's just the, the interview goes in a completely unexpected direction. Um, obviously, that's not what happened. So, oh, yeah. I was excited there. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, my friend won't rapping or something, right? Is he, that, no. he will not be joining the government benches. Um, so we will uh, we will dig into that at the bottom of the show. For the first half, we're going to talk about the new wave of violence in the Middle East uh, on an entirely serious topic. Uh, Israel and Hamas are the are exchanging rocket fire. They're probably exchanging rocket fire right this minute. So how worried should we be? Uh, but first, we have to talk about something closer to home. You may have heard about Bill C-10, which, depending on who you're talking to, is either the government of Canada's way to update broadcasting laws, or it is backdoor to the worst censorship since the uh, Burke burning of the Dark Ages Uh the truth, as always, is somewhere in between. Uh, but I, I think there is cause to be alarmed, uh, or, or at least cause to be concerned. Alarmed seems a little uh, melodramatic, but uh, you know, this is work being done by the same people who said we're going to save local news and then authored a massive payout to the people who have pretty much destroyed local news. And uh, it's hard not to think about that in the back of your head when you see these same people talking about updating the broadcasting regulations. Mixed messages, indeed. So, <laughs> Broadcasting Act hasn't been updated in about 20 years. And I think with the other um, CRTC regulations, aka CanCon, it's been something like 30 years. Now, that's actually a separate thing, but it it kind of it makes an appearance in this legislation, obviously. Um, Stephen Gilbow, the minister, had to kind of walk back what he would had said earlier in the week mm -hmm. about the uh, people who are smaller broadcasters, let's say, not smaller broadcasters, but it, the where is the line? And actually, the best headline I saw about this was in the uh, was in the Montreal Gazette. It said everyone seems confused. <laughs> so if I seem to hum and hob it, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm sort of confused of where these things lie. But he had to walk back some comments about where the line is between if someone is just a, a user of the internet or a producer of content, and if they produce 
a ton of content. Are they a broadcaster and are we going to treat them like a broadcaster? An example would be, say, Open Sources gets a million views on uh, YouTube and we make a ton of money from that, a live version of us chatting. And mm -hmm. it's made in Canada, purely Canadian. We chug a lug maple syrup as we're <laughs> doing the broadcast. Are we broadcasters? Then, of course, the, the pounce happened. It's like, no, well, people should have the right to use the Internet however they please under the Constitution, freedom of expression. And this was one of the reasons why the proceedings about this bill have kind of ground to halt. And now it's going to be a committee, oh, our favorite thing, a committee, mm -hmm. is going to kind of hack out clause by clause, pick apart this bill, which it sounds like it needs because if, if they can't present it in this, you know, cogent way let's say it's like well here mm -hmm. here is the package please peruse this and it's like you've got it's not a constitutional challenge per se but they're kind of saying well it how deeply would something like that infringe on somebody's free speech rights and would they be violated by this bill so they're calling in the experts calling everybody in to say what do you think of this so mm -hmm. well it starts with like a, a simple question which is what is the problem we're trying to solve is the problem we're trying to solve that you or i or the kid down the street with a youtube page where they are like reviewing frozen pizza or um if you know you have a twitch page where you're playing mario kart uh, and interacting with people or if like you know, if we were to t take this onto YouTube and do like a nightly news show, um, are we taking away eyeballs that would normally fall on like local or, or programming or Canadian programming? I don't think so. Then what are we trying, you know, what is this trying to solve? Are we trying to solve the fact that um, Netflix and Amazon Prime and different carriers aren't producing a lot of CanCon? Well, I suppose. Um, on the other hand, I would argue Netflix has probably done more for CanCon than all of Canada's private broadcasters combined. Um, if you think about who amplified Shit's Creek, it wasn't the CBC. It was Netflix. It was Netflix in the United States that amplified Shit's Creek, turns this into, into an international phenomenon, a thing that wins Golden Globes and Emmys and SAG Awards and all that. So, again, what is the problem we're trying to solve? The problem we're trying to solve is Bell isn't making as much money anymore. Shaw isn't making as much money anymore. Rogers isn't making as much money anymore. And uh, because of you know, we have the, the regulations haven't kept up with technology. Um, we're now like feverishly playing catch up and the heavy hand of the government. I hate talking like this because I sound like freaking like Rex Murphy, <laughs> but the heavy hand, of the, it's just it, it's Never. the same. It's the same people who said, I know the problem with local news is post media tour star, the Thompsons and everybody aren't making enough money. So we're going to give them the money instead of giving them to local startups who are experimenting and trying new things or whatever. And, I mean, the, the most damning thing about Bill C-10 is that the CEO of Bell Media, like, endorsed it online, uh, which to me says, you're going in the entirely wrong direction if the CEO of Bell Media is like, yes, you did it, exactly, this is exactly what we want, because, uh, no, that's, I mean, the part of the reason why 
things have gotten the way they are is because uh, the broadcasters are playing by old rules, and uh, this is a game with entirely new rules. And it just it seems like nobody involved in this debate or at least from like an actionable position in this debate, whether it's the government or the people that the government are listening to really understand the landscape. And that is one of the reasons why we have all this confusion now is because they announce something. It's what um, their, their advisors and, and consultants and the, the guys they meet over drinks or used to meet over drinks, mm-hmm. uh, told them, and ev- and everyone else's reaction is like, you're going to do what now? <laughs> well, yeah, and and that's the key thing, is is the players. I mean, you, there, there's a solid argument to be made f- for someone, and, you know, I, this is me giving you a Golden Globe, someone like yourself, right? <laughs> there, there, there should be a pipeline somewhere for what for what you do to be able to be presented as... You know, we, we need to uphold this because community media has been, or local media has been eroded so much. It's like, let's amplify this guy and never mind the rest of them because they don't they don't care because they don't have to. And I mean the bigger mm-hmm. players that you mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. F- further to that, though, as you, you're saying, it's like the, the landscape has almost completely changed in the universe, the universe of the, the kind of bloated cable package. And you're getting mm-hmm. that the bunch of stuff that you don't want or you don't like or you never watch just because of these old regs that are saying you have to have this channel and this channel and this channel and this channel because Canada, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we obviously need to preserve Canadian content uh, or at, at least get it out there. But this, that may not even be the, the question. Or are we asking the right question? Because it is getting out there like that, that, the delivery system isn't really the problem anymore. But you think back to this you know, a few months ago. This bill was they were calling it like the Netflix tax, right? And the mm-hmm. it was kind of like this: how how can we uh, monetize the big players who don't pay anything? But as you were mentioning there about Canadian content and what Netflix contribution, th- there is so much stuff on Netflix aside from the things they pick up from, say, the CBC or whatever, like Kim's Convenience and. Um, Shit's Creek, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there are productions on Netflix that qual that would that would fit all of the CRTC criteria, which I mentioned was a, is a model from thirty years ago. Whether it's 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 made in Canada, based on a Canadian story, the production team is here, right? Oh, if mm-hmm. it fits, if it ticks a bunch of boxes, it qualifies as CanCon, but it doesn't yeah. when it's on Netflix. But it does when it's on uh, CBC or CFRU, let's say, right? And a great example of that is Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Handmaid's Tale doesn't count as CanCon, even though its originating author was Canadian. It is, uh, I think it's entirely shot in Canada. I was going to say predominantly it's shot, but I'm pretty sure down they the shoot. Down the road, yeah. Yeah, they, I'm pretty sure they shoot the whole thing in Canada. That Bowbridge, um, Cambridge is really famous now, like world famous. Yeah, they run Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> they run Handmaid's Tale through, or they did before everything. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's... Um, it, I, I, you know, in the latest season, Canada has been a pretty big part of the story. So there's actually literally Canada content in the thing, um, but it doesn't count as CanCon, and that seems so weird. And I saw a group called Open Data make this point. It's like we have this stupid old point system where Handmaid's Tale isn't CanCon, but if I were to put together a team 
and make it set up in like a, a studio in Toronto and make a documentary about how aliens were involved in the JFK assassination, that would be considered CanCon <laughs> because of the point system, which is completely ridiculous because there's no Canadian content in this thing. And t- to make another point, they want to talk about competition. Okay, I have a Roku stick, which allows me to have access to streaming channels on my TV because I, I, my TV was a, about a year too old to... Uh, to, to have like a smart TV hookup. So I bought a Roku stick. I can get Amazon. I can get Netflix. I can get Disney plus, you know what I can't get. I can't get CBC gem. It's not Roku compatible. I can't get CTVs.ca's various streaming sites. That's not Roku compatible. You want to fix, I mean, <laughs> just to fix. I, I think only recently they added crave to Roku, which is amazing to me like how many Mm. people out there have roku sticks and they're sitting in their offices in toronto their 52nd floor offices in toronto going these kids in their streaming taking our money it's like (laughs) why don't you why don't you put your streaming sites on roku so that people can actually access your stuff no you're not going to do that of course not because that would require you to be like someone who is like adapting to the market as opposed to forcing the market to adapt to the way you did things in 1987 yeah, and that's I mean, if if all these kind of background things don't change and, and other you know legislation in, in other areas right that defines certain things. An example was given in terms of content creators. Like, say, there's a, a bona fide Canadian content creator. They're from I don't know Mississauga, let's say, mm-hmm. but they put out absolute garbage. Example like <laughs> Kevin J Johnson, right? That doesn't. <laughs> You know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. That doesn't necessarily fall within the broadcast act or any of this, but yet the the stuff that he's, you know, the reprehensible things that he says, or say, you know, you're being an abusive person online, or and all of that garbage. I mean, you're you're still you you would be covered by these rules, but that you know there there is other laws that need to be addressed before it's like okay, well that's you know is this the CanCon you want, right? But it would still qualify. There'd be this long list, and he would be at the bottom. I would say, um, but that and there, that's the kind of thing the 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 angles and approaches to it. it. It's to me, it's kind of like when the parents are trying to be with it and cool with the kids. And believe me, I'm getting to the age where it's kind of like that, where it's like I don't, I you know, I don't know what's going on. What the hell's a Roku stick? No idea, right? <laughs> but <laughs> you think your TV's old? Well, but I'm still able to see things, right? But. But the uh, yeah, you, you, when you're talking about Gem and, and CTV streaming services, those companies obviously know where it's going. You can see it evolving because I, I watch the national on uh, my laptop, but all of the ads are for, are for Gem. Sign up for Gem. Sign up for Gem. You, you get like channeled uh, computer ads rather than whatever the heck is is through the air anymore, which is which was me until we lost the signal, and now it's. Probably no one in these parts watches CBC through the air. Okay, three people. I don't know. But this <laughs> is the thing. You're using a through-the-air model for something that's that's a com- almost completely different universe. It's still eyes on the page and mm-hmm. eyes on the show. But if they can't get that straight, like I said off the top there with everybody seeming confused, mm-hmm. then uh, it's probably good that they've kind of tabled it and gone back and trying to find out from experts i'm not actually sure i've saw it twice but i'm not sure who these experts are. i know the justice minister is going to speak to it and gilbo himself but i'm not sure who else is going to be on this 
panel. I don't know. Justin Bieber? Who's the all when you think CanCon, who do you think of? I don't know. And all I, I Yeah. All I know is that you have companies everywhere like scrubbing their vaults for content to throw up on streaming sites. And there's nowhere you can stream like Beachcombers or The Littlest Hobo or uh I don't know, Friendly Giant or um my secret identity, like classic Canadian shows. It's like, you want to get people hooked, give them the good stuff and see what happens. But of course, you know, this is like streaming 101. Raid your vault and stick it up there so it looks like you have a ton of stuff on your streaming site. But, I mean, that's that's another issue too well, i'd give uh, retro ontario a shout out like this is exactly what we're talking yeah. about this is somebody that creates yeah. content from old tapes yeah. they're just putting it out there they're obviously not paying anybody any residuals for the show but it's more it's a nostalgia thing and, and people love it and i think it's being done for the right purposes but like you say the potential for something like that to go to go big i suppose yeah. and be allowed to do that and be able to fulfill certain criteria they should totally be allowed to do that right but yeah um also people should be allowed to live which is something that is harder to do in east jerusalem these days and that was a horrible segue but it's the one we're going with mm-hmm. um starting earlier this week uh i mean it's a it's a complicated string of affairs um we have several families in this uh sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in east jerusalem uh, are being evicted from their homes. Uh, they called it an eviction. Um, that sounds a little tidy for what's really going on. And if anyone's seen the tape of this Palestinian family being, you know, trying to confront the people who are forcing them out of their homes, uh, only to hear somebody, uh, an Israeli citizen, say to them, well, if we don't steal your homes, somebody else will. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really quite shocking and abhorrent. Um, all of this collided. There was supposed to be a Supreme Court decision on uh, one of these cases on Monday. It was postponed because of this outbreak and violence that uh, didn't necessarily start with, but was certainly exacerbated by a, a march of a right-wing group through this these this Palestinian neighborhood celebrating Jerusalem Day, which is ostensibly the day that uh, Israel won the Six-Day War in 1967. Uh, There was a raid on Al-Aqsa Mosque as well, uh, just in time for uh, Laylat al-Qadir, which is um, one of the holiest nights in the Muslim calendar. And all of this erupted into um, some good old-fashioned mortar fire from uh, Gaza, Hamas strongholds, and uh, retaliatory airstrikes by the Israeli Defense Forces. So it is quite the mess in East Jerusalem right now. Well done. That is like the tidiest two-minute summary <laughs> of the whole thing. I mean, I know, obviously I you can't pack a lot into the... <clears throat> we can't talk about everything because this is it's one of those issues that just sprawls kind of like... Mm-hmm. Uh, how this started with just some some like you said it was protests about the evictions but there was also it seemed like the uh, the police there and the the forces didn't like people hanging around it starts out with people just just hanging around they're just existing right mm-hmm. something about i read something about the damascus gate which is what this is a gated city it's an occupied city right it's these people have been living under occupation for a very very long time right Mm -hmm. so and then you you mentioned jerusalem day and i saw some of that and it reminded me of when i used to see the orange walk it's Mm -hmm. kind of like the in your face we took this from you and we're we're going to march and we're we're not going to stop and 
So mm. no one, <clears throat> they're not helping here in this situation, right? So, no. but this is one of those, you see, we've seen this over and over. This is a, like for the past, it's every, it kicks up every few years, right? It's 2021 now. We saw it in 2014, 2012, 2008. I feel like we've spoken about this every, <laughs> I wouldn't even say few years, like almost every year in various iterations of the show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it's a tough one because it, <laughs> here I here I am hesitating, but I, I yeah I'll, yeah I'll kind, of, I'll kind of speak to what uh, uh, Trevor Noah spoke up about it, right? And he, he had a really good line, which was, "If you're in a fight where the other person can't beat you, how much should you retaliate?" Mm-hmm. So as you've seen, it's like. You know, Hamas and the militants will set off these rockets. The Iron Dome takes out these rockets. And then Israel, who are very you know, well armed, I think the number is up to like 60 people dead now, including a bunch of children, lots of people wounded. There are also people wounded in Israel. That is true. But this is the way this always goes. It starts with this, like the Damascus Gate or people being evicted. Mm-hmm. So settlers can take their place. And then it just becomes this. Really want to swear here, but it becomes this disaster, right? So, but getting getting back to Trevor Noah for a second, because when he, <laughs> I did a little bit of a dig and the comments on him in terms of like anytime he speaks out about like, something like this, even in a let's call it a comedy setting, he's mm. called anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. If you just you don't have to dig too deep to find it, right? That it's he gets called that. And this this is the way to shut down any discussion at all about this if you if it seems like you are taking a side. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, lots of people have said enough is enough. It's like this has to be called out for what it is, right? Well, it's it's also I mean, it's it's somehow even a messier situation right now because you have both sides uh, washing like just political stales political stalemates, like because of course. Benjamin Netanyahu, his thought is right now on going on trial for corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in the back of his head. Meanwhile, they just finished their fourth election, and the opposition is trying to put together a coalition that would um, basically mean that Bibi Netanyahu isn't um, the head of the Israeli government anymore, and a whole new government would take its place. That is far from certain. It could very well lead to a fifth Israeli election in the last uh, at least in the last two years, because this whole thing started in 2019, and for a couple of months they try and form a, somebody tries to form a coalition government, and it doesn't happen. Um, but on the Palestinian side too, they were supposed to start elections. Uh, I think in a couple of weeks, um, elections which they haven't had since 2006. So that has like the new wave of violence has thrown that all into a tailspin meanwhile all because of the rocket attacks all attention is on hamas who have like Mm -hmm. no official standing at all but of course because since hamas is firing rockets um people then staple all palestinians to the actions of hamas and that's not helpful either and in the meantime it, it just you know there's a new um administration in washington they don't want i mean they're trying to get out of 
<laughs> foreign situations, mm-hmm. let's say. Uh, they don't want to be involved in a new one. They have more than enough on their desks domestically. Uh, this is kind of the last thing Joe Biden and his team want to deal with. But on the other hand, too, um, this is a, a, a situation that has been kind of exacerbated by four years of uh, a Trump administration that frankly didn't care what Bibi Netanyahu did as long as um, he supported Trump and Trump supported him. It was a it was a transactional relationship that in which the Palestinians were um, not even a factor in at all. So I mean, it's just it's a mess inside. It's a mess outside, mm-hmm. and, and and I think it's it's one of these. It, it's just there, there's no. Normally, you, you wait till it kind of they get it out of their system. You know, they have to have a a dust up every couple of years because the tension has been building so long. But I mean, in in this case, like there hasn't been violence this bad in years and years and years. And I think that's because a lot of the, like the, that internal stuff has been going on too, but it's just, you know, the, the, the kerosene has been dumped out and it's just been waiting for somebody to light a match. And I think the match has been lit. The question is how bad is the fire going to be? Mm-hmm. Cause it's, it's always, it's continuously on simmer. It mm-hmm. has been since 1948, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, when did I can't remember the exact year when Israel got out of the Gaza Strip, but it's still effectively completely blockaded, right? There's a, there's a, it's people probably know this, but it's one of the most densely populated places on Earth in terms of the people per square meter, <clears throat> and there, you know, there's resources and everything is is it's difficult for them just to even function can't function within Israel well. And also, I mean, the occupied West, it's an occupied place and East Jerusalem too. So people will put forward all kinds of solutions. Tr- Trump didn't really do that. Trump was just happy to, you know, people probably saw it. There was like, when they put these banners up, it's like, thank you, President Trump. I was like, he could do no wrong with them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's the type that he's happy. It's like, oh, look, they've got my picture up in Tel Aviv. So he <laughs> would he would be happy with that, right? But it doesn't, uh, it yes. doesn't, yeah, so that's that's all it was. It doesn't help the political situation, but of course they're continuously feeding Israel arms and money, right? So mm. I don't think that the Biden administration is going to stop doing that. But there is there is this, and it, I think it was the same with Obama as well. There was this reluctance to sort of dive right in mm-hmm. and take a side on it. But what they always have that official line. I've heard it a billion times, I'm, and I'll probably butcher it, but it was. It's like Israel has a right to defend of itself, but mm. the Palestinians have a right to safety. And trying to do this equation as if it's like, it almost hints at the one-sidedness of the whole thing, where it's like, we are going to shoot pop rockets at you, and you have all the ability to shoot these things down. Some of them get through, right? Mm-hmm. But you have the complete ability to protect Israel. And then we're going to like, just, we're going to give you a warning and then we're going to blow up apartment buildings that we know Hamas or whoever is working out of. You probably mm-hmm. saw that, right? It looked like mm-hmm. a controlled demolition. Mm-hmm. That's You need serious weaponry to be able to take down like an individual building like that, right? Yeah. And it, it's it's more and more, too. I saw one just before we hit the mics here. It was like, there's, an, there's like another one getting... So where does it stop? And no one steps in and says, okay, stop. Like there, Because yeah. there really is no one to do that right there's no one who there's no 
I wouldn't say overseer, but it's not going to be the UN. I'll say, well, the UN, which isn't actually, it's a bit of a myth. The UN founded Israel, right? It was their, yeah. right? That That's, the UN's done in terms of getting, intervening and stuff like this, right? Well, no so one has the moral be, authority right? anymore. It's, yeah, no. no one has the moral authority, and, and that makes it this much harder because um, events of the last 20 years have sort of <laughs> thrown dirt on everybody, and I, I mean, that's the big question. It's like, where does it all stop? Because nobody has the authority to like say, stop, it's over, let's sit down. That's, th- those days are just gone, and nobody knows what's going to happen next. We know what's going to happen next. A commercial break. Another horrible segue, but that's okay. We're going to take a break and come right back with our interview with Mike Schreiner. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM. CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. It's funny, my name is funny, I look funny They say my clothes are funny, I speak funny, I laugh funny They say I pray funny, I dream funny, I sing funny Oh my god, it's funny, but where I'm from, it's not so, so funny And that was our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records, the little big record store, 21 McDonnell in the downtown. Still pick up only these days. We'll see when that changes. And that was a song by Alicia Brila, who I believe lives in Kitchener now. So somewhat local. Tri-Cities, we'll say. And that was called Immigrant. Doing our bit to support uh, East Asians and Asian Heritage Month. And uh, that's a thing that... uh... We're, we're trying to promote this month on CFRU. We did our part on end credits this week by reviewing Mortal Kombat. So, oh. uh, <laughs> which which featured a predominantly Asian cast. I just I feel that's important to know. Ah, uh, right. The the movie wasn't the movie wasn't great, but it it, uh. it was you know they had Asian people playing Asian characters, which um, if you know your Hollywood history is refreshing. Um, it's also refreshing to have our local MPP back on the show, Mike Schreiner. It's been a while, and there is uh, so much to talk about going on at Queen's Park. And uh, Mike had a lot of things to say about what the premiere is doing and what he is not doing. So uh, just let me reach over and uh, click play on the tape here, and uh, we will listen to what Mike Schreiner had to say. Well, Mike Schreiner, thank you so much for joining us again. We know how much you love to come to Open Sources and be interrogated, so we appreciate that. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to be on and uh, happy happy to have the opportunity, and I, I hope you're, you're safe and doing well, Adam. Uh, I'm as safe as I could possibly be here up on Snake Mountain on Guelph Politico headquarters. Uh, but you are in the legislature. You are in your office because I can see you through the Zoom. Um, I'm wondering if you could do a little pop psychology for us, uh, you know, sitting in the same room as the premiere every day. Uh, What do you think is going on in Doug Ford's head right now? Like, where where is he at in terms of trying to lead the province through through this latest phase of the pandemic? I only ask because I feel like he's been largely invisible. And I realize that two weeks there he was in quarantine. 
but you know, he's been out of quarantine for over a week now and I feel like he's still invisible. Yeah. I think the disastrous press conference uh, that he had when he announced the new public health measures and did exactly what the science table said not to do, which was bring in policies that would disproportionately hurt vulnerable and racialized people, which essentially is what reintroducing carding did. And um, to close outdoor um, activities, which is what playgrounds and other outdoor activities, um, you know, had such a negative effect on people. And the backlash was immediate uh, from the public and from various police forces saying, Hey, we're not we're not going to we're not going to support these random police checks. And so the premier's been largely pretty much out of the spotlight since then. And you know, I, I will I, I tend to be somebody who likes to try to be empathetic with folks. And, and and I will say that you know the premier's in an incredibly tough position, making life and death decisions every day. And, and that's not easy for anyone. And, and so, you know, I, I cut the premier a little slack on that. But the bottom line is, is what I find incredibly frustrating uh, and very discouraging is that the premier keeps saying, you know, I'm making my decisions based on science, but over and over again, especially during the second and third waves of the virus, when he makes decisions, the scientists and public health experts come out you know, a few days later, and in some cases now almost immediately, because I think they're getting frustrated and saying, no, the premier is not following the advice that, that we're giving him. And, you know, that started back in the fall with the color-coded framework that he came up with. And then they had to change about a week later after so many public health experts said, you know, your numbers make absolutely no sense. It's going to lead to disaster. I think back to February 11th, when the co-chair of the science advisory table said, hey, if you lift restrictions, we're headed to a disaster. Well, the disaster is here. And then, of course, the infamous uh, press conference I've already talked about. <laughs> and, and so my advice to the premier right now, whatever he's thinking, is follow the advice of your science advisory table. The only way I think we're going to get, you know, have public confidence in the measures the government is taking and getting, you know, compliance with public health measures is if the premier is transparent about the decision-making process and shows how the decisions are grounded in the data and the science. And I think that's largely what, what the government has failed to do. And I think that's why we're in such a very challenging situation right now. I think I'm with you, though. I think I am sympathetic uh, to the premier because I think this is a I mean, in so much as no politician wants to govern in a time of like immense existential crisis. This is definitely not the position Doug Ford thought he was going to be. And he was going to like his biggest thing was stopping the gravy train. Um, but I, I, I do wonder in, in so much as like he does take has taken these sort of missteps. It is noticeable when the boss isn't on the floor, right? And, you know, we, we've both had bosses and there's a definite there's a definite way that the office or the, the floor feels when the boss is on the stick and there's a definite feeling when the boss is not on the stick. And I think we're in the latter right now where we can definitely feel like no matter how much, you know, kind of we're fed up with the decisions Doug Ford is making, we can tell he's not sort of... <laughs> at the controls right now and and we feel a bit i i guess lost without the the heavy hand of the boss 
going around it. I mean, how do, how's that, how does that sound? <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say that the bigger issue there is just an absence of leadership right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, we need, we need clear, transparent, strong leadership right now. And, and we're not getting that. And, and I think we've seen that in so many of the flip-flops the premier is making. And, and I think it's a lot of it's due to the lack of a plan mm. and clear goals and clear communication about how to achieve those goals. I had a professor at University of Guelph uh, reach out to me in the early days of wave one and offer what I thought was really sound advice was it, you know, the best way to help lead the public through a public health crisis like this is to set really clear goals and to show people the measures you're taking to achieve those goals. And the premier simply has never done that. Like literally it's never been done. I mean, I think I heard Dr. Williams uh, yesterday give the first time I heard any sort of like, well, let's get it under a thousand cases a a day. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, somebody's actually given us a target, you know, 14 months into this thing. And and even that I think is an insufficient target, but, but at least, at least, you know, something. And, and, And so I think, Part of the challenge we're facing right now is, is just a lack of leadership from the premier. And to me, you got to ground your leadership in, in some sort of foundational principle. And so for me, it has been listening to the science and acting on that science and being very clear with the public uh, and transparent with the public on, on that data, on those decisions, what the goal is, how the actions we're going to take to achieve the goal. And, and that's been absent in Ontario. And so I think that's one of the reasons people from across the political spectrum, I don't care if you're like pro-lockdown, anti-lockdown, left, right, whatever, are increasingly feeling frustrated with the premier uh, due to that lack of leadership and, and clear guidance about where we're headed and why we're headed in that direction. You, you did mention... Uh benchmarks and i think that is one thing that would help because it gives people something a goal to strive towards right if 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 tug ford came out and said we will open reopen golf courses and rec facilities at you know 1500 cases a day and we will go back to the color-coded system when we get down to a thousand cases a day people can then visualize that right yeah it's 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 you're not kind of letting people blow in the wind. It's like, well, maybe we'll extend it a couple of weeks and who knows what's going to happen. And yeah. Or even just flip-flopping. So, you know, I remember, you know, back what end of March, early April, when the premier said, Hey, we're going to let uh, restaurants, particularly in the hotspot areas, like reopen patio service. And so people, business, small businesses started gearing up for that. And then a few days later, he pulled the emergency break and shut it all down and, you know, according to Restaurants Canada, that costs small businesses in Ontario over $100 million. Mm-hmm. And so this lack of leadership, this lack of like clear goals, benchmarks, a plan to get there has real cost to people. Uh, and in this case, you know, for small businesses, a real financial cost. But I would argue for, you know, people in the healthcare system, particularly, I think of, you know, healthcare workers on the front lines and our ICU units, et cetera, like it is having huge costs in terms of just stress on the system, lives are at stake, uh, people's mental health is at stake. Um, I think of education and just our children and accessing schools and playtime, like there's so much at stake. 
And, and so having a clear plan, clear benchmarks, transparent, clear communication is just vital. Well, let me lay out a scenario then and you can tell me how close you think I am to the truth. Uh, we're not going to find out about an extension to the lockdown order till uh, a week from this Wednesday. Wednesday, Wednesday, May 19th, around 3 p.m. We're going to get the the wagon train uh, of the cabinet members coming out and and saying that the lockdown's extended for two weeks. How, how close to the truth do you think I am? <laughs> well, uh, if, if history is any guide, you're probably not far off, sadly, Adam. I mean, I can't tell you how many uh, businesses, municipal leaders, healthcare leaders who have all told me, you know, these Friday at 5 p.m. news conferences that give people, you know, uh, 24 hours notice, or in some cases, maybe till Monday, but because it's a weekend, it's almost like 24 hour notice just doesn't cut it. Uh, or how many times the premier is delayed acting even, you know, four or five days. And in the case of a pandemic, four or five days cost lives. And so, you know, again, in the absence of leadership, in the absence of a plan, in the absence of clear guidelines that's driving decision making, you get these last minute decisions or, you know, I, I just think of the nine hour cabinet meeting, like, my gosh, you had clear guidance from your science advisory team. <laughs> Why did it take nine hours to debate it and then come up with plans that were what the scientists told you not to do? Like, I, I just I, I, I just don't get it. Um, and so I hope that's not the case this time. I keep pushing. Uh, I know others are pushing uh, for the premier to give people plenty of notice so they can plan their lives, whether it's you know having your kids in school, whether it's reopening your business, whether it's, you know, how, how you're going to plan for, um, you know, uh, help providing healthcare services, everyone in all parts of our society and community needs some time to plan and, and the premier needs to have a decision-making process that provides people with the time to plan. Right. But, you know, we're over a year, we're up almost 15 months into this. I mean, and we've talked before about can the government be persuaded? It just seems like if they were going to be persuaded to start following the advice, that would have happened before the 15 month mark. And I, I mean, I just, this may be rhetorical, but you know, what are the odds that <laughs> that's going to happen now? <laughs> never, it's never too late to do the right thing. And, and given, um, you know, and I, I don't want to put too much into poll numbers because in my opinion, the only poll that matters is election day. And, I think it's too early to even be thinking about the next election, even though it's you know, only, only a year away. Um, but that being said, you would think that declining poll numbers would be a bit of a wake up call that you need to do something different than what you're doing. Um, I think more importantly is just, you know, the stress, the continued stress on our healthcare system. Um, you know, I know case counts are starting to come down. Um, ICU numbers um, are starting to come down slightly, though not fast enough. But then yesterday, you know, we learned the, the, the backlog, uh, the surgical backlog and diagnostic testing backlog is three and a half years right now, um, which is just completely unacceptable. So there's a whole host of other implications outside of COVID that affects people's um, health and well-being, that affects the ability of our healthcare system to address people's healthcare needs. And, and so you would think in, in the face of all of that, 
it would be a wake up call to say, hey, maybe we need to do something different. And one of the things we can do different is to actually follow the advice that's coming from the scientist. Well, you make a good point about the, the surgical backlog, because it's, it's an example of how we sort of need to start thinking post-pandemic now in terms of like the, the post-pandemic recovery, whether that's economic, whether that's healthcare. Um, but we're still trying to figure out the pandemic. And if we can't figure out the pandemic, again, 15 months into it, you know, how do we have the time, effort and energy to figure out what to do post-pandemic? And it's going to be the same kind of kind of random pinball approach where we kind of go from one crisis to another. Yeah. And, you know, I would add, you know, the mental health crisis, um, the climate crisis, the housing affordability crisis, like there's so many challenges we're facing right now. And it's hard to address those challenges when you have a premier who, you know, really doesn't believe in government, if you actually want to get down to it. And, and, um, and, and so, you know, you know, what is government? Government is we as a collective society, all working together to figure out how to most efficiently and effectively solve the problems and challenges that we face. And, and so, you know, I, I'm a strong believer that, you know, right now we need leadership that wants to make government work effectively in a way that most efficiently benefits the public and puts the public first. And it's, it's challenging to do that when you have a premier in place right now who really doesn't believe in government. Mm. I think part of that ethos, shall we say, is what, what what's happening with long-term care because we get two reports in the span of the week that paint a pretty grim picture. But I mean, this is another thing where um, the Minister of Long-Term Care has been silent. I, I can't think of a public statement she's made since uh, she got up in question period last week and basically said it was Andrea Horvath's fault for not solving the problem. It, it just, it, it, it's, it's not a problem that's sort of unique to Doug Ford, it, it, the, the leadership gap, in that, you know, we had this problem in long-term care. We have two reports now that suggest action. I know you've come out and said that all the recommendations from the Independent Commission should be enacted. But why aren't we hearing that from the Minister of Long-Term Care? Like, where's that leadership? Yeah, well, I asked the Minister that question directly in question period last week and really asked for a yes or no answer. So, you know, let's have a simple yes or no answer here. And, and uh, you know, received a word salad in response, uh, sadly. And so then I came back and I said, well, at the very least, will you um, extend and make pandemic pay permanent for PSWs? Because it, you, you read through the Long-Term Care Commission report, and, and I would argue, you know, as Doris Greenspan at RNAO, the Registered Nurses Association says, you know, we've had 30 reports in the last 25 years or so outlining the problems in, in long-term care. So, so none of this is new, though tragedy has certainly been, been made worse by, by COVID. And, and my heart just goes out to, you know, the nearly 4,000 families who lost a loved one, the staff who've had to, had to work through, you know, the, the humanitarian crisis in long-term care. But at the very least, like, let's make sure that we treat the people who are on the front lines of caring for elders with the dignity and respect that heroes deserve. And that means being paid a living wage, being you know, guaranteed full-time work with full-time benefits, uh, having good working conditions. 
Um, because the bottom line is, is that directly affects the care being provided elders. And so I thought, even if you weren't going to say, yes, we'll, we'll, you know, go forward with all 85 recommendations, at least that section of recommendations, which, which I thought were, were a vital section of the report, could you at least commit to that? And, you know, sadly, the government didn't even commit to that as well. And, and I think what I find particularly disturbing is, is the Minister of Long-Term Care has never apologized, has never really accepted responsibility, continues to blame, you know, other parties, essentially, primarily the previous government. And, and yes, the previous government made a lot of mistakes. They failed to invest in long-term care adequately. But the bottom line is, is the current government made the situation worse in their first two years in office. And on numerous occasions during the first wave, and especially over the summer when they could have been preparing for the second wave, failed to act. And that is well documented in the commission's report. And, and so how can we expect this government to address the problem if they're not going to accept responsibility for the role they've played in the problem. I mean, to me, that's one of the first steps. And that's what's so disappointing uh, in the minister's response thus far. I didn't have a chance to look it up. But, you know, I think the report that came out after the Elizabeth Whitmer affair was like 92, 93 recommendations. The latest independent commission was 85. So we've gotten 10% better in six years, I guess, in long-term care, which isn't great. But I mean, if you want to hang your hat on something, it 10% progress is better than no progress. I do want to address, uh, or maybe even just give you a chance to plug, you are doing these the, the series of town halls. And I know the one this Saturday is kind of about seniors care and um, I, long-term care is obviously a factor in that as well. Uh, what kind of feedback are, are you hoping to get out of these town halls? And uh, how is, is that going to like sort of, feed into how the you and the Green Party develop policy for the next election? Yes, it, it will definitely feed into our policy development process. Uh, you know, so to me, policy development is a combination of consulting with experts and getting expert advice, people who really have a deep knowledge in the issues that you're dealing with. But it's also talking with people and their lived experience and how they experience uh the policies and programs that you you want to try to improve. And so the town halls have been a great opportunity um, to provide that kind of input, which guides what I'm doing at Queens Park right now and helps guide future policy development as well. And, and so we did our first one um, uh, last week on, on mental health and addictions and it was, the feedback was, was fantastic and very helpful and certainly guides the work I'm doing. And, you know, I would just say, you know, here in Guelph in our community, there's a lot of good work and a lot of active work being done in the community around improving mental health and addiction supports and programs and access to services, as well as addressing uh, supportive housing, because there's a definite link um, there. And, and so, you know, I just really want to keep pushing uh, the province to provide some funding that helps support that good work that's being done in our community. And that came out loud and clear uh, in the town hall last week. And it's worth noting Guelph has another supportive housing uh, project on the way as of this week's city council meeting. So that is uh, two this year. Uh, we are kind of running out of time, so maybe I can get a, a quick answer for this. Uh, 
I'll ask you an environmental question since you're the green leader. <laughs> but Highway 413, uh, is, is is it done? Is that, you know, is that kind of something we don't have to worry as much about? Or is uh, are the developers sort of recouping now that uh, there's an EA, a federal EA on the way and it, it's it's not over yet? What do you think? Oh, I definitely think the public needs to keep putting the pressure on the government. Um, there was a moment where it looked like the provincial government was starting to walk back their support on 413, but since then have kind of doubled down on it. And I'll have to say, Adam, last summer, and I know we need to be quick, but last summer when I was doing news conferences on 413, I can't tell you how many people said to me that, you know, Mike, it's great you're speaking out on this. This highway makes absolutely no sense. The costs far outweigh the benefits, but, you know, you are not going to stop this highway. Like, why are you even wasting your time? Here we are eight months later, and a whole citizens movement has built up. Now the other two opposition parties at Queens Park are speaking out against it as well. We have a federal environmental uh, assessment, and it just shows you um, the power of people, that people speaking out and organizing and speaking out uh, for their community makes a big difference, but we can't stop uh, putting the pressure on the government because it's not a done, it's not stopped yet. I can, I'll tell you that. Mike Schreiner still proving the doubters wrong. Uh, we'll have to leave it there, but thanks for all your time today. Anytime, Adam. And once again, that was our local MPP, Mike Schreiner. And uh, I think that's the third interview we've had with him on the show that was not in the studio because of the, the pandemic. So, um, be nice to have people in the studio someday. I'll he's, just leave yeah. that. I'll just leave that there. <laughs> he's a record holder in many respects. I think we'll have to get him a green jacket or whatever our version of the green jacket is. Green jacket might be a little on the nose. Anyway, uh, we'll have... yes, I realized that after I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of on the nose, it is almost six o'clock on the nose, so that means we have to leave. Um, or just sort of get off the line, I guess. We don't have to leave the studio. Anyway, that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. Stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire and on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. The show, you can download it from our website every Monday. Get it from the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter, and for more info on all things CFRU, check out cfru.ca. And of course, keep the dial parked right here. Keep it parked right here. We do have DJ Sounds Good to Me at the top of the hour here. She's broadcasting from wherever her bunker is on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will be back here from our bunkers next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources, and we will see you then.